Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are in the room live, watching live online or later on demand, or listening to our podcast, we've been praying that you would experience the life-changing power of God in your life today. If this is your first time visiting Dayspring, we want you to know that this is the kind of church where you get to be you. There's no need to pretend that everything's perfect in your life. It's certainly not in ours. We are regular people on a journey, allowing Jesus to make something beautiful out of our broken and often messy lives. We're learning to live like Jesus, a little more today than yesterday, a little more tomorrow than today. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. That team is made up of people committed to helping you grow. People grow here because our team loves to challenge, encourage, and equip people to become more like Jesus. So if you're on that journey too, we're looking forward to lending a hand. Even if you aren't sure that you're ready to be on that journey with us, maybe you are skeptical about the claims of Jesus or skeptical of his followers. Well, this is still a great place, a safe place to explore and ask questions as you look for answers. We're asking questions and looking for answers too. So I think we can be pretty good company on your journey. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. We are diving right back into the story of Jonah today as we wrap up this series. And as we unpack this chapter, we are going to discover that Jonah is an extremely closed-minded bird brain. So to avoid lumping ourselves into his bird brainness, I want to begin by praying and asking God to open our hearts to receive what he has for us this morning. So would you bow your heads with me? Father, Lord, thank you for your word that exposes so many things in our lives of things we need to work on and your truth to be applied. So, Lord, this morning I pray that our minds are opened, our hearts are opened, that we can let other things that may be distracting us just fall by the wayside just for this moment and focus in on you. And, Lord, see how these things can be applied to our lives today. God, you have something for each one of us. So, Lord, reveal what that is for us this morning. It's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen. Judith Judith Vorst wrote a popular children's book that I grew up reading. It's called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. It's all about a boy whose day starts out bad and just goes downhill from there. He gets gum in his hair. He gets his sweater wet in the sink. He trips over his skateboard and doesn't get a prize in the cereal box. And that's all before breakfast. He could tell right away that he was, it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And then he goes to school and his teacher doesn't like his drawing of an invisible castle. <laughs> then he doesn't get dessert in his lunch bag and his best friend doesn't want to be his best friend anymore. And after school, his mom buys him just plain white sneakers instead of the ones with the red and blue racing stripes. 
The dentist finds a cavity in his tooth. There are lima beans for dinner, and he gets soap in his eyes when he takes his evening bath. In frustration, he finally says, I think I'll move to Australia. You see, if you're, if you're like me, you can relate to this story because we've all had days like Alexander's days when people treat us unfairly and nothing works out the way we want it to. And by the time we fight our way home through bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic, we're just plain mad. You see, we are in the fourth chapter of Jonah's story today. And it begins with Jonah thinking that he has just experienced one of those terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. And Jonah was angry, not at things or even people. No, he was mad at God. See, this is the last week in our series, Life Interrupted, Reluctant Prophet, Relentless God. We've reached the climax of this extraordinary narrative that, interestingly, interestingly enough, paints one of God's own prophets in a really critical light. You see, typically, God's prophets relay a message from God to help correct his people, the Israelites. Now, this story is very different, and it breaks that mold of this typical prophet experience. And this short book is all about a prophet named Jonah, who is a very prideful person, particularly about being an Israelite. And God has chosen Israel to be his own special possession and people, and Jonah thinks that his nation should prevail in every way. But everyone else? Well, God should destroy them and pave the way for Israel's success. But God has called him to give a message to the enemy, those who lived in the mega-civilization Assyria in the capital city of Nineveh. And this is the foundation of the book. And in week one, we saw Jonah, who is called by God, turn tail and just run from God in complete disobedience, and he's going as far in the opposite direction as possible. And after being confronted by life, a life-threatening storm, he's thrown overboard by the oddly mor morally superior pagans who recognize God is upset, and they start to pray to God. And then Jonah spends three days and nights in the belly of a fish praying to God, not really repenting of his ways. And then after being spit up on a beach, he finally listens to God's call and dis delivers a succinct one sentence message to the city of Nineveh. He tells them, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. He doesn't identify the reason for their impending destruction or describe how to repent and doesn't even mention God. But surprise, both the king and the entire city repent and turn to God in hope that he would spare them. And so as we approach this week's scripture, we have a few questions, right? How will God respond to the Ninevites' immediate and surprising repentance? Will he still pour judgment and wrath on them like Jonah expects, or will he be faithful to his character? So to start, let's briefly look at the final verse of chapter 3 to get us started, to set this stage for the last chapter of Jonah. So if you have your Bible, if you turn with me to Jonah 3.10, paper or digital is fine. And here's how, he's, how we're going to start. Jonah 3.10 says, When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the, the destruction he had threatened. If the book of Jonah closed on these final words, Jonah would be a hero. 
right? The city is saved. Jonah was successful. He's also completed all the steps of good storytelling, right? He was reluctant and ran away from God, encountered a problem, had a change of heart, learned from his mistakes, and finally he succeeded in his task. The Ninevites go from a people lost in their sin to people who have turned towards God. And this is where we would expect to read, right, and they lived happily ever after. But this is not a fairy tale. And that is what we get because the story doesn't end there, right? So as we pick it up in chapter 4, we find that the narrative turns from these worst of the worst Ninevites back to someone who is actually the worst, Jonah. This stubborn Israelite prophet is just, he's going to throw the ultimate pity party for himself. And God is going to invite both a welcome and not so welcome guest into the mix. So to start, let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 4. In his response to God, Jonah says, or the, the verse says, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. Now Jonah's prayer to God in chapter 2 may have led some believers to believe that Jonah had turned over a new leaf. Maybe being stuck in the disgusting, salty belly of the gray fish was enough to convince this foolish prophet, finally, to follow his mighty God's instructions and deliver the message to these awful Ninevites. And then in chapter 3, we see this washed-up, smelly prophet finally being faithful to the call God has that he's received back in chapter 1, albeit again with a less-than-compelling message. But then here in chapter 4, we see Jonah's true feelings float to the surface on full display, leaving no doubt in our minds that Jonah is still the same, if not more bitter than before. And if this is maybe shocking to you as you consider this, then that's probably the right reaction. It's correct. How could this idiot not have a change of heart? Right? He still hoped right up to the end that God would destroy these people, even though they have repented and been forgiven. And instead, he just chooses to burn with anger. And I believe this is part of the intelligent design of this book. It's kind of comedic in its, in its effect. You're supposed to chuckle every once in a while in response to this guy. Not because it's necessarily funny, but because Jonah's response is just ridiculously self-centered and childish. But why did Jonah react this way? Well, let's read on in verse 2. It says, so he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. He's so self-righteous about this response from God and the Ninevites. I knew this was going to happen, he proclaims, right? And he proceeds to unpack for God the reasons he ran in the first place. Is it because Jonah was, was scared of being killed by the Ninevites? Was he worried about that, the long journey? Was he just so lazy he didn't want to do it? No, none of those things. He ran because he knew that his God would be true to his character. 
Man, I wanted those people destroyed because they are not Israelites. But here you are, God, being true to your character and not destroying them. He's just so full of condemnation, even towards his God. And what's so strange is that Jonah chooses to parrot back to God this list of positive attributes about him, right? Compassionate, slow to anger, filled with unfailing love, as if these are faults on which God should be judged. You see, this is, in fact, is actually a direct quote from Exodus 34, 6. And there's a bit of irony with this scripture that Jonah quotes. The storyline of Exodus 34 is right after Moses and God dis, dis, uh, discovered the Israelites, who again are God's chosen people, that they've made an idol, the golden calf, and start worshiping it. And upon seeing this, God is, he's ready to strike down these forgetful sinners but thankfully, Moses intercedes for them, and they're saved. Why? Because God is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. Without these attributes that are in integral to who God is, Jonah wouldn't even exist. His lineage would have ended right there when God and his ancestors at that day at Sinai, and yet... Here he is, so irrational and hot with anger, it makes no sense. And he's so infuriated that he wants to die. Which, what? He just said God is weary of killing people and then immediately ask, him to end, to ask God to end his own life. He's, he's so missed God's point. Jonah should be grateful in this moment. God has chosen life not just for Nineveh, but for this foolish and self-centered prophet as well. And on the surface, Jonah's words make no sense. Remember, this book isn't really about Jonah. It's about God and it's about us, the readers. Jonah represents us. The same grace that was poured out for you is the same grace that the one who has done wrong to you can receive as well. And that's the concept Jonah is really having a hard time grasping. And this is what scholar and founder of the Bible Project, Tim Mackey, calls the dark side of God's mercy and grace. Because we receive grace means that the worst of the worst in the world are also offered the same grace. It's scandalous, and it makes no sense from our perspective. It feels unfair and just undeserved. Nobuo Fujita, who was a member of the Imperial Japanese Navy, was on a submarine named the I-25, which is 10 miles off the coast of Warrington, Oregon. In the dead of night on June 21st into the day of June 22nd, it fired 17 shells from her 12-caliber deck gun, intending to end the lives of many U.S. military personnel stationed at Fort Stevens. And the fort was immediately caught by surprise as the shells exploded all around. Men leapt from their beds and without turning on the light, they arrived to their posts ready to respond. You see, this was the first military installation in the contiguous United States to come under enemy fire in World War II. The damage destroyed the morale of those stationed at the fort for a season. And the backstop of the baseball field was completely obliterated. And in the end, Fort Stevens sat quiet and absorbed the fire without a single shot in reply. No lives were lost that day. The Japanese, along with Nobuo Fujita, had failed. But this, this was not the last time Nobuo, Nobuo would be 
part of an attack on the coast of Oregon. In fact, back in his home in Japan, the warrant officer was specifically chosen for a special incendiary bombing mission due to his prowess in piloting his seaplane. His plane carried two 168-pound bombs, which sole purpose which was setting Oregon's beautiful forests ablaze, as well as any homes or towns along the way. On September 9th, two of these bombs were dropped as Forest Service Ranger Howard Gardner was keeping watch from a nearby lookout tower. And as he looked out, he noticed smoke. So a team was formed to go and inspect the damage. What they found was only a few small scattered fires were started because those bombs were not dropped from the correct height. The two attacks on Oregon in September 1942 were the first enemy aircraft attacks on the contiguous United States since the War of 1812. And eventually, the I-25 was sunk with 100 souls aboard near Fiji. But Nubuo was not one of those 100. He would go on to train kamikaze pilots on, until the war ended. And then he opened a hardware store on the east coast of Japan. Of Japan. You see, this man and his crew had every intention of taking innocent and military Oregonians' lives that September. But thankfully, everyone here at home was, was spared, while 3,757 Oregonians lost their lives abroad in the service of their country. You would expect that this type of warfare against our country and state would be met with hate and disdain. And honestly, how, how would you respond? How would you be able to forgive this man who is hell-bent on destroying your lives or even your grandparents' lives. You see, we receive grace so easily, but to give it takes so much more effort. And 20 years later, in 1962, this failed Japanese warrior was invited to Brookings, Oregon, which was the closest town to the bombing, to make amends. Along with him, he brought his 400-year-old samurai sword to give as a peace offering. And you know, this, this makes no sense to me. He was invited back to the place he was keen on destroying. I would have let him live his life the rest of his days in his humble lifestyle back home. And I'm not the only one who thought this. Mr. Fujita had the same internal dialogue. It's believed that if the citizens of Brookings, Oregon refused to forgive him, Fujita intended to commit seppuku, which is ritual suicide, with it. And he was later quoted as saying, I was quite sure that once in Brookings, I would be beaten up. People would throw eggs at me and shout insults at me. But to his surprise, the people of Brookings welcomed him with large crowds, a special reception, and a key to the city. Wow. That, I believe, is grace in action. I don't think it really makes sense until you consider that God's ways are far better than ours, far better than Jonah's ways. The Apostle Paul described this exuberant compassion in Ephesians 2. And he writes this in verse 4 and 5. He said, but God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. What incredible, unjust, undeserved mercy God has for all of us. He is so filled with love that he offers new life through his one and only son, Jesus, was God's mercy on full display. 
You see, the Bible is not filled with, with, with stories of characters for us to emulate, but it is about a God who is filled with mercy. See, I believe there's a bit of Jonah inside all of us. I think if we're honest, Jonah isn't as wild as we make him out to be in our minds. We're looking at a mirror and staring at a reflection back at ourselves. And then God asked Jonah and us a question that really gets to the heart of this story. In Jonah 4.4, the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry about this? And now, the, the answer is pretty obvious to us, right? We have no right. But let's get back to the narrative and see how, this, how Jonah responds to this question. In verse 5, Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. All right, that's, that's one way to respond. Right, Jonah completely ignores God. He doesn't respond. And to be fair, he's pretty good at avoidance at this point. It seems to be his go-to response, which is no response at all. So God did not get through to Jonah with this question. And then what does Jonah do? Well, he makes a shelter, probably out of rocks and branches forged from the surrounding hillside. And I imagine that would take a while to build. And if I know anything from my Boy Scout experience, if you make a shelter, it means you're probably going to be there for a while. And so Jonah, we find, is setting up camp. But for what? Well, I want to revisit Jonah's half-hearted proclamation that we, kind of st that we started with. In chapter 3, verse 4, this is his message. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. So there's our answer, right? He's waiting for God to strike. He wants fire to rain down from heaven and consume these horrid people. Maybe the image of Sodom and Gomorrah is playing in his head. Meteors cry crashing and such, you know. He wants his prophecy to come true so badly that he's waiting just to wait around and watch. And this is why we call prophetic sabotage. Remember, he said nothing about God or what they did wrong, just that they're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. He thinks he's going to get his way. But that's not really how God works, is it? In his announcement of judgment, Jonah uses the Hebrew word hapak. Many of our English words today have double meanings, right? Like, for instance, the word foil. In one instance, foil can mean thinly pressed aluminum, or it can be used to convey that a plan has been frustrated, right? And as Pastor Michelle told us last week, this Hebrew word hapak has a double meaning. In one instance, it means destroyed or overthrown. But the other meaning of hapak is to turn over or restore. Both these meanings are linked to this one word. Now, which one does, does Jonah mean? He means destroyed, right? Demolished. He wants to sit in his shelter and watch God completely level the city. But what, does, what, what actually happens? Right? Jonah's prophecy comes true. But Nineveh gets hapaked the opposite way from what Jonah intended, right? The Ninevites repent and turn over towards God instead of persisting in their pagan ways. And remember, Jonah is still ticked, right? He's stewing in his anger, hoping to see this event play out before his eyes, this destructive event. God has yet to get through to him, but since this cataclysmic event isn't going to occur, God's, God has, he has some time, right? 
So I guess it's time maybe for a new tactic. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. Ensued, it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was really grateful for the plant. All right, finally, something has changed in Jonah's heart, right? For the first time in the entire narrative, Jonah is happy. He's grateful. This movie, Debbie Downer, finally experiences some sort of happiness. Then this plant has provided Jonah a bit of relief. He starts to relax as he waits for God's judgment to fall on Nineveh. However, that judgment, that has been reserved for him. Not in the grand scale of like a meteorite being hurled at him, but by way of an itty bitty little creature. In verse seven, but God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Now, being a youth pastor, I've learned that there are few teaching techniques as effective as a good object lesson. And apparently I'm not alone in this idea, as God has the ultimate object lesson prepared for Jonah here. God provides this joy for Jonah, and then just as Jonah really begins to enjoy it, God takes it away via the worm. And once again, no surprise, Jonah has a really strong reaction. Finally, he has something good going for him, and now it's gone. So Jonah just sits there in his little shelter, burnt by the sun and blasted by the wind. He's had it. He's fed up. And then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah reported, even angry enough to die. Man, God just can't with this guy, right? This was attempt number two and nothing. At this point, Jonah just seems to be beyond any reason. But God still hasn't given up. Remember, this is the same God who is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. I think that's such a wild part of this entire story. Jonah doesn't even acknowledge that God has pursued him and has shown him as much mercy as he gave to Nineveh. And again, here we see that God asks the same question. Is it right for you to be angry? And so Jonah, he goes for the hook. Finally, yes, he says. So God begins to unpack this plant worm object lesson. Now listen up, this is the point. Then God said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry? For such a great city? See, God breaks down his illustration to Jonah so he can't miss the lesson. And expertly, God has like trapped Jonah in this argument, right? There is no logical escape from this lesson. This is God's mic drop moment, right? It's over. Jonah, if you cared so much for this thing that was around for like a short while, shouldn't I have more concern for something a little more significant? Jonah, I care so much about my creation, about life, about Ninevites and animals, and even you. 
See, Jonah thinks that the Ninevites are the worst, but again, who is actually the worst? Jonah is one of God's chosen people, but that doesn't excuse his behavior here for one second. This whole time, Jonah has been God's enemy, and yet God loves this broken man through thick and through thin, even trying to get him back on track. See, there's no tidy end to this story. There's only loose ends left hanging. We wonder, how, how does Jonah respond? Does he run away again? And unfortunately, wandering is all we get to do. We don't get to know the rest of the story. The book ends there. It's the end. And that doesn't, well, that doesn't seem very fair, does it? We love a good ending. But to be honest, this book hasn't really been conventional in any way. Right? We have a disobedient prophet, a man eating fish, and an evil na nation just dropping everything to worship a new God. They all had a point, and I think this abrupt ending does too. So then what do we do with it? Well, I think a few things. First, we need to understand that this story, again, was never actually about Jonah. It's about God, and it's about you and me. The question that God asks isn't really targeted at Jonah, it's at you. How am I living in response to God's question? Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemies? That maybe you need to set yourself aside as, and let God do his miraculous work in people that you don't think deserve it. This part of Jonah reminds me of a story I've heard. At a pastor's convention, a speaker once said, yesterday, 30,000 children around the world starved to death and you don't give a blankety-blank about it. And so replacing your heads, light swear words, right? And the pastors that were there admitted that they were thinking, ah, pastor, you really shouldn't have said that. You're only going to get us mad at you. And many of the pastors admitted that they were indeed angry at his cursing. But then just as all of them moved up to the, the edge of their seat in sort of like this defensive posture, the pastor said, the sad thing is you pastors are more upset that I said blankety blank than you are about 30,000 children who starved to death yesterday. And silence just descended over the room. And they said that almost in unison, all the pastors just slunk back in their seats thinking, he's right. God, how did we get our priorities so mixed up? When did we become so callous to human needs? The question posed to us by God makes us slow down and consider the lavishly abundant love God has for all of us. Some of us are so absorbed in our traditions and our freedoms and rights that we forget the selfless love we are called to extend to each other. The story tells us that God puts up with the Jonah inside of all of us. The Jonah part of us that says we need to separate ourselves from our enemies. And recently, I've been in a teaching series with our high school students called, What If Jesus Was Serious? We've been asking that question about Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're sincerely asking the question, what if Jesus was serious? And one of the most prominent and extreme teachings is about enemies. And so God said this, or Jesus said this, this is what he said. He said, but to you who are willing to listen, I say, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who hurt you. And we can approach this scripture and on the surface you can say, okay, 
I can choose not to hate people. I don't really care for most people anyways, so I don't have to put in the emotional effort into hating them. But love? Do good things to those who hate us? That's actually crazy, Jesus, and it's like on a whole different level. How am I supposed to bless those who curse me or pray for those who are actively trying to undermine me? So was Jesus serious? Or are we just willing to, unwilling to obey, sitting in our houses, waiting to see God's judgment in the world while we just sit and watch? Was God serious when he was working to soften Jonah's hard heart towards his enemies? And in this moment, let's just define what an enemy would be to us. I would say that it's anyone who is difficult to be around for whatever reason. Maybe it's their personality or something they've done to hurt or offend you. In this moment, I want you just to think of that person in your mind because we all have someone who's like this. And when someone is our enemy and has wronged us, what do we usually do? I think we immediately fixate, fixate on the wrong that they did to me or someone I care about, and then we slowly but surely make them the villain and we kind of strip them of their humanity. Slowly but surely, in our minds, they become nothing more than their faults. But that isn't right. right? This is someone who God has designed and, has bears, and bears his image. They have a story. They have strengths and weaknesses. They are fallible, imperfect, in process, and forgiven, just like you and me. And so after we situate them in our minds as being opposite to us and our values, then we really start to believe that we are completely the opposite, right? We are the heroes overcoming the odds sent against us which again denies our humanity. None of us are perfect. Do we have the right to be angry? And often we say yes to that question. They wronged us. They are the evil person. We are the innocent victim. I don't need to go out of my way to love them. And then boom, we become Jonah. They are the problem. In the story, who was actually God's enemy? Jonah. He wanted to believe that it was the Ninevites, but that's not true. He was the bad guy. And when we go out of our way to disobey God, we are actively working against him, which makes us the enemy. You see, there is a gift hiding in the presence of enemies that we can find here. Jonah's flaws become extremely obvious in the light of the task before him. He made God his enemy, and as we've seen, Jonah has lots of issues. And the same can be said about our own experiences. If Jonah had remained in his home country, he would have never grown. He would have remained the same bitter nationalist Jonah. But this outing that God has him on exposes his many, many problems. Our enemies also expose our flaws, and it can be painful to come face to face with them. Our enemies can expose our shadows, and many of us need to come to terms with this enemy love God has called us to. So this week, I want you to write down all the attributes you would associate with an enemy. Really, I want you to do this. Write out things like selfishness, gossip, criticism, whatever. Then ask yourself, where and have I ever acted like that towards someone else? You see, I believe that this humbling exercise can help us empathize and pray for those we consider to be an enemy. See, God loves your enemy, and you need to as well. It's what he's calling Jonah to do, and it's the same message to us. 
Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this is easy or even that I have got this down. It's not easy. And neither I nor God is asking you to dismiss the real pain and wounds that have been inflicted in your life. But the Ninevites would face judgment if they had not turned to God. And we don't do this by ourselves. We have the Holy Spirit who is alive inside all of us believers, convicting and leading us to restoration and spiritual maturity. He is always patient with us as we do this. He is a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. Just like Brookings, Oregon showed love to Nabuo Fujita, the man who was their enemy in the past, we need to love and bless those we deem unworthy. And we can see through Jonah what happens when you get stuck in your anger. He got so stuck in his own stuff that he was unable to let go of himself. He let the Ninevites control how he lived to the point he wished he was dead. I don't want that type of life, and I really don't think you do either. See, if you find yourself as a Jonah today, running from God and wishing there was another way to live, can I invite you to consider the way of Jesus? You see, we're all enemies of God. We were born with the infectious disease known as sin, and sin is going against the ways of God. It's hearing that we need to live one way and then running the other way. It's choosing our own way instead of this beautiful, purposeful life God has for us. God offers us grace and meets us right where we are, just like he did with Jonah. And God pursued us by sending his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. From the cross, Jesus uttered these words. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Before we choose this new life that Jesus offers, we didn't know what we were doing. We were lost in the turbulent sea, sinking deeper into death. But Jesus paid the price and saved us from our graves and put our feet back on the firm ground to live his way with hope for eternity with him someday. If you have yet to make that decision to follow Jesus, today could be your day. I and the rest of the pastoral staff would love to pray with you and help you understand what following Jesus really looks like. And if you're watching online, please let the online host know by commenting in the chat feature. And if you've already said yes to Jesus, then which way are you running? Jesus' way or your own? Are you right to be angry or do you need to love your enemies? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your relentless love of us. The God we see here in this example of Jonah, that this enemy lost prophet, that God, you pursued him as much as you pursued those awful Ninevites, that God, you are relentless in your love to us. So God, as we are on the run in so many different ways from the way you have called us, Lord, let us realize our, our, our ways and turn back to you. God, you have amazing plans for us if we only trust in you. And God, let us just continue to be remembered of who you are, that you are full of mercy, you are full of compassion and love for us. So God, let us ultimately turn for you, not go out of this place unchanged by these four weeks of learning about this reluctant prophet. But Lord, understand that you are relentless in your love for us and that all we need to do 
We simply turn to you and you are there to save us, to save us out of, our, out of the graves that are waiting for us. Lord, let us continue to pursue you with all that we have. It's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions on your own or with others will help the truth of God's Word begin to shape your life as you grow to be like Jesus. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of the faithful giving of people who call Dayspring their home church. God's work in their lives has left them changed, has made them more like Jesus, and they have come to understand how God uses their generosity to encourage others to become like Jesus as well. So if you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. We count it a privilege to play a small part in God's perfect work in you today. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Until we meet again, I am praying that God would give you opportunities to use your influence for the glory of His kingdom. Oh, and one more thing. Thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. Even more, thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. If this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives. So keep sowing.